Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. It's my weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. My name is Raik van Kerk and my guest today is John Bicard. He's one of the most prominent value investors in the country. Many people regard him as uh, one of our best contrarian investors and he manages the 91 Value Fund as well as the 91 Premier Global Value Fund. And he's been in the industry for more than 30 years. I think he has seen it all. John, thank you so much for joining me. Let's just start with value funds. It seems as if uh, value funds have been swimming against the tide for many years and the management style has been out of uh, favor for for a while. Yet you are sticking to your guns. How do you see the current positioning of value funds and and the future? So you're 100% right. It's been 12 years now that value globally and domestically have underperformed. So this is one of the most extended downtrends in value. In fact, one of the brokers put out a very good graph that sort of sh- that shows value over the last since 1930, and this has been the worst period for value investing, but ever since 1930. There was a bad period in the 30s and the 60s, and in the dot-com bubble at the end of the 90s. But this, basically, from 2006 till today, uh, value's been underperforming, and the principal reason is. Free money. So after the global financial crisis, the debt built up so much and real interest rates basically have just continued to fall. So the cost of money has fallen. And as the cost of money has fallen to basically today's level where money is basically free. So there's no risk free rate at all. So if you and that is why things like Tesla are valued like they are, because when there's no interest rate, money in 20 years time is worth the same as money today. So. Everyone buys long-duration stocks, in other words, stocks that may pay a lot in 20 years' time, and when there's no cost of money, you don't mind waiting for 20 years. And value investing is really about money today. So you buy stocks who are not growing in 20 years' time but are delivering cash flows today, and they're on the other side of the spectrum. So 12 years, interest rates have fallen in real and in nominal terms, and over this period, values continue to underperform. But I think many analysts and investors and fund managers think that we will have low interest rates for years to come. So this is where it gets very interesting. Obviously, we're value investors, so we're looking for a turn in the cycle. So, you know, you have to take what I say from where it comes. But there is an interesting thing that is happening in the world at the moment. So you're 100% right that real interest rates have to stay low for a number of years because the debt in the world has grown to like 280% of GDP. So in essence, the globe is basically bankrupt. You know, we were nearly bankrupt in 2008 and we built up more debt and then COVID came and the debt levels are through the roof. So central bankers cannot allow interest rates to go positive in real terms. So we're going to have negative real rates for many years to come, but they may not be there may still be a rise in nominal interest rates. So what I'm saying is there's a chance, a really good chance, in my opinion, that inflation is coming. So that we will still have negative real rates, but nominal rates will go up, and that would be good for value. Doesn't value What really matters to value are nominal rates, not so much real rates. So what central bankers really want to happen from this point is they want to create inflation because the only way out of 280% debt to GDP, we can't save our way out from this position, they have to create inflation and inflate away the debts. 
And so in 2008, they printed all the money, but no inflation followed. But this time around, the money has been printed, but because COVID has been so severe, the money has gone into the banking system because a lot of corporates basically ran out of cash or the debt was too high. So they drew down all this emergency amount of debt in the last six months. So the central banks have printed the money. In 2008, the money didn't go into the banking system. But today, the money has gone into the banking system because of these emergency drawdowns of debt. And that is how inflation, it doesn't, if you print money and the money doesn't go in the monetary system, no inflation will follow. It has to go towards the banks because it's the banking system that creates inflation because they've got the fractional reserve system and they, they create money when the money goes into the system. So this time around, there is a real chance of inflation. And in essence, if you, if you want to invest in value investing, you have to believe inflation is coming, which is something we believe. Now, that's a very interesting perspective, but it won't happen overnight. It can happen over a period of time. Yes. Is it now the time to start looking at value funds as opposed to some of the more momentum-driven funds? Well, I would say it will take some time, but it may only take a year. You know, the, We've already had six months of the money going into the system, and actually it's quite interesting because if you look – the market that really counts here is the U.S. market. And if you look at the last two months' inflation numbers, both of the last two months' inflation numbers were significantly ahead of expectations. So in actual fact, two months ago, the month-on-month -month increase in inflation in the U.S. was the largest month-on-month -month increase since 1991. So this is not something that's just in my head. In the last few months, inflation numbers of a very low base have actually beaten expectations quite a lot. So it's all this money coming in the system. And there's also another thing that is creating, which is because of COVID, the world of free trade has been disrupted. So one of the reasons why inflation has fallen for 30 years is global trade has increased and it's been easy to trade across the world. And that has enabled prices to normalize and to come down across the board. Now with COVID, a lot of ports are shut and it's quite difficult to transfer goods and people across the world. And that's causing some blockages in the system, which is causing high inflation as well. So you're right, it may take a year or two, although it's already been six months and there's a few signs. But I think the most important thing to remember, if there is any inflation that comes, the market is totally unprepared for it. I mean, if you look what we've spoken about in the last five minutes, the market expects does not expect that to happen at all. I mean, there is no way that the NASDAQ can be at 11,000 when people expect some inflation to come because those stocks will be the most vulnerable if there's inflation because those stocks are priced off a bond yield of half a percent in the US, a 10-year bond yield of half a percent. Yeah. If there's sudden inflation that goes up one or two percent and the bond yield goes up from a half a percent to two percent, the number one asset that is at risk is long-duration stocks like Tesla or Apple these stocks that are trading on half a percent dividend yields and 30, 40, 50 times earnings, if the bond yield rises from a half to 2%, those are the shares that will really fall. And so if you look at NASDAQ and you look at value stocks across the world, there is no expectation there is any inflation. So this will be a big surprise to the market. So my advice to people is you need to think, if you've got 100% of your money in long duration stocks, be it quality, be it healthcare, be it uh, tech, 
you and you need to start looking a little bit on the other side of the coin. So maybe this is a time not to have a hundred percent in long duration growth stocks, but to look at these bombed out inflation hedges, which you find in value funds. What is on the other side of that coin? Can you talk about these inflation hedges uh, in some yes. more detail? So there are two basic areas, and in the value fund, we have lots of both of them. So the first one is commodities and principally precious metals. So all commodities will benefit from high inflation, but what we really like are precious metals, which historically have shown the best protection against rising inflation. And here I'm talking about gold, where we've got 30% both locally and internationally on average between the two funds in gold, and we've got about 10% in platinum. So though 40% of the fund is in precious metals, and that is a place to look. Now, obviously, precious metals have done pretty well. So, But on a 10 or 20-year view, they really haven't done very much at all. But in the last year or two, they've done a lot, but we're still hanging on to that position. And then the second part is you need to find old economy assets – that have large asset bases that are depreciated, depreciated asset bases, and that are exposed to a broader level of the economy that a high inflation number will help their earnings. So I'm talking about infrastructure, steel, cement, these sort of businesses. So cement is maybe the best example. So cement shares globally have done terribly because they're old economy stocks and you can buy a global cement company on a four or 5% dividend yield. But if inflation comes, it will not benefit the tech stocks, but it'll it'll benefit the cement shares because, you know, suddenly their top line, which has been growing at 2 or 3%, suddenly will be growing at 4 or 5%. And when you suddenly your revenue line is growing at 4 or 5% because of that jump in inflation, and you've got this big depreciated asset base where there's no change in the costs, you know, the profits, instead of growing at 5%, Mm -hmm. suddenly start growing at 25%. The short answer is precious metals, and then most of the the bombed-out shares that you'll find in a lot of global value investors, of which a lot are infrastructure and old economy stocks. It's interesting because you own mostly shares in gold and platinum companies, uh, but not the actual metal. Why not? I've never really understood people who say, I like gold and platinum, I buy the physical, because if you're going to be right about gold and platinum and gold, so for instance, this year, I think gold's up 25%, but most gold shares are up 50 or 100%. So if you're right, you may as well buy the gold shares because that's where the leverage is, unless the shares are very expensive. So if I put in the current gold or platinum or PGM prices, into a model and I see what sort of earnings these companies are earning and then I suddenly see these shares are trading on 15 times or 20 times earnings, you know, then there's a case that maybe you should buy the physical metal rather than the shares. But the truth is, at Spot Gold, you can buy a whole basket of gold shares on 12 PEs and if you put the Platinum Group metals at Spot, you can buy a basket of platinum shares for about five times earnings. So that tells me that the market doesn't really believe that gold is sustainable here and doesn't really believe that the platinum group metals are sustainable. Otherwise, why are the P's 5 and 12? The warning Mm. sign about the shares is when the metals are high, like gold and platinum, we think they're going higher, but they are high, and the P's are 15 or 20. 
then you need to be careful. But for more conservative investors, you can also buy the you can also buy the metals if you wanted to. Let's talk about the South African market. If you strip out Nasper, Strosis and some of the mining companies, the market has performed really poorly over the last few years. And yes. there is a lot of value on offer. Where do you see the deep value? It's quite interesting because we've also got a bit of a different take on the South African market. So you're 100% right. Stripping out those shares, the SA market has basically been in a bear market for five years and has done nothing for 10 years. So, But there are a few points I'd make. The first point is the mainline South African shares, and here I'm talking about the big banks and the big retailers and some of the industrial companies – came from an incredibly expensive level of five years ago. And so it's a bit unfair to say you can just shut your eyes and buy the banks or the retailers because they're down 50 or 60% or 70% in some cases, remembering that where they came from, and some people who've been listening to value for some time, remember five, six years ago, we kept on going, we cannot understand how South African retailers can trade on 30 times earnings and that the price to book of South African banks can be three, three and a half times. So the first trap is you've got to be careful. The shares have halved, but they've gone from ridiculously expensive to a level where we actually think the mainline SA Inc. shares are not as cheap as what people would think because South Africa has a real fundamental growth problem, a very high risk level, a lot of political risk, no growth. And an enormous amount of debt. And so what you've got to be careful here is the debt to GDP in South Africa is 100%. And that is a real problem. So I'm saying to you, South Africa is really bust. <laughs> I mean, that is just the truth of the matter. So you need to pick very carefully in South African shares now. And you need to buy shares that are patently, ridiculously cheap. And I think you will make money because some of them have got too cheap. But I'll give you an example of like a share that people might think is cheap, which is first rand, which I think has fallen from, say, 65 to 40 rand. But first rand's price to book is still 1.6 times price to book. Remembering global banks trade, you know, some global banks are 0.2, 0.3 times book. And globally, you battle to find a bank above one times book value. And yet first rand still trades at 1.6 times book value. So first rand might have fallen 40, 50%. But it's gone from very expensive to a level where South Africa still has to do quite well for you to make money buying first round of foot. And I'm not so sure about that. And then on the other end of the coin, I'm going to give you an example. There's a share we hold, which is a mid-cap, small-cap share, a share like Caxton, which is a printing and publishing company. And this share has gone from 25 rand 10 years ago to 4 rand today. And at 4 rand, Caxton has... 1.7 billion rands worth of cash on its balance sheet, and it's real cash that they earn interest on. So it's not like cash that they show at the year Mm. end. It's the cash they've got throughout the year, and yet the market cap is 1.4 billion rand. So what I'm saying is this is a company that's trading 300 million rand below its net cash holdings, leave alone its plant and equipment and land and buildings and working capital, and leave alone the fact that it's a 5 billion turnover business that prior to COVID made 500 million rand, 400 million rand cash flow every year. You get that for minus 300 million rand. (laughs) So what I'm saying is in the small and mid-cap arena, I think there's some really good value to be had that even in a different South Africa, which is what I think is going to happen, 
you can make good money even in dollar terms buying these shares that have fallen 90%. So we've got 20% of the value fund in small and mid-cap shares, but we don't hold any SA banks, we don't hold any SA property, and we don't hold any SA retailers, except we've got a small position in Lewis stores, which is very much cheaper than the rest. In your fund commentary, which was published in August, you actually yes. uh, quite explicitly state that your exposure to South Africa is via small and mid-cap companies yes. which have performed substantially worse than local banks and retailers. Yes. Can you maybe refer to a few of those companies you've bought? Ones like Caxton, and then there's a little one called Novus, and then we've got Roynet, Oceana Fishing, Huleman, Metair, Brait, Grinrod, Grinrod Shipping. Those are the sort of shares. And if you look at that basket of shares, on average, they're probably down 80% on average of their highs. And instead of trading at one and a half times book like first round, these shares, a lot of them trade at 10% of book value. Some of them trade at their cash value. So you're basically buying the businesses for free. So that's a very mm. extreme. In order for those shares to work, we don't need South Africa to grow at 3% for the next four years. We just need some sort of post-COVID recovery just to some sort of normality. And these shares should do well from this level. So that's how we're playing it. And I think probably in the post-COVID world, you know, some of the SA, the larger SA Inc. shares might have a bit of a bounce, but it's not – to me, as a deep value investor, it's not, you know, first round is not hmm. patent value, if, if you hear what I'm saying. I've seen over the past year or so quite frequently that you also buy shares in your personal capacity and actually yes. take some big positions. I've picked up that you've bought into Hilleman as well as African Media Entertainment AME, which, of course, MoneyWeb is a subsidiary of. Why not just invest in your own fund? Why buy these shares directly? So... The answer is, I mean, Huleman, we have 5% of Huleman in the value fund. We're not allowed to hold more than 5%. So in essence, you know, for our clients, we've bought as much as we can of these shares. And then that's all I'm allowed to buy. So in terms of, so I do invest in my own fund and all, you know, 50% of any money I make from a 91 goes into the fund. And I hold money in the fund apart from that. But apart from that, what I'm saying is there's a couple of shares, and I, I also hold in, in my personal capacity Novus and Caxton. And the, you know, these shares, I mean, I've embarrassed to say I've been in the market for 30 years in South Africa. And really, you only get, in my opinion, a chance to buy shares like the shares we've been speaking about every 10 or 15 or even 20 years at such low levels. So I've put my own personal money in. And uh, we have very strict dealing requirements at 91, so it has to be cleared by compliance. And basically, I'm invested alongside the holders of in the value fund. But it's a question of as much, when I'm finished buying as much as I can for the clients that I've bought for myself. That was John Thank Bicard. You. He is a fund manager at 91.